On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Andrew Davison about participation in God. So we cover topics like just what is participation in God? What is that supposed to mean? What are the ways it would cause to participate in God? What are the various ways theologians have thought about our participation in God? Does participation in God lead to panentheism? What sort of language do we need to make sense of participation? And then we talk about what is the relationship between theology and philosophy? I think this episode is super fun, and I think what is so fun about it is that you really get the sense that you're actually at Cambridge. There's a couple of sounds in the background that makes you feel that like you're really there in his office, so I loved it. Now, as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those things, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we want to do that with particular virtues in mind. So we've tried to really emphasize and cultivate, and hopefully most of the time model, uh, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I think most of our episodes, we try to focus on all of those virtues at once, and I think one, I mean, critical thinking and, and along with curiosity come to mind for this particular topic, because I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it's, we're going to be talking to Dr. Andrew Davison about his book, Participation in God, A Study in Christian Doctrine and Metaphysics. And I think for 90% of the listeners uh, who listen to our podcast regularly, they're going to look at that subtitle and think, that's, most people would probably look at that and say that's, that's probably pretty bland. But I think all of our listeners think, man, that's super exciting. I'm pumped to hear more about Christian doctrine and metaphysics, particularly as it relates to participation in God. And I would count myself as one of those. So I've been able to read a good amount of this book, and I found it really, really interesting and helpful. I think the terminology participation God gets used a lot. So this is just, I think, an awesome opportunity to learn more about this. So Dr. Davison, before we jump into the topic in particular, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with who you are or where you're at, could you just give us a brief little bio? And then what is it that made you interested in thinking about this particular topic and and writing a book that's almost 400 pages on it. Well, it's a great pleasure to be involved with this podcast. It represents just what the church needs, it seems to me. As you say, serious theology, cheerful confessionalism, charity, critical thinking. This is a terrific initiative, so thank you very much for having me on. Yes, I'm Andrew Davison. I'm a theologian and a priest in the Church of England, pastor, a writer and theologian. I hold the position of Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge. That's a position that was endowed about 30 years ago by the novelist Susan Howitch. And rather wonderfully, she didn't name it after herself, but she named it after the fictional city in which her novels are set, from which I imagine the proceeds helped her pay for the position. So unless there's a Narnia chair somewhere, I'm maybe the only person with a position named after a non-existent that place. That's awesome. Uh, and then I'm also the fellow in theology, or one of the fellows in theology, at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. So you might know that the university consists both of faculties, but also of Cambridge of colleges, which uh, combine people from all different subjects and are um, like little medieval scholarly communities with a chapel and a dining hall and a library and so on. And uh, so I'm the 
following theology there and Dean of Chapel. So alongside my colleague, the chaplain, I'm responsible for the liturgical preaching life of the chapel and the, the pastoral role of the chapel in the college. My academic background is in science before it was in theology. So I, my first degree was in chemistry and I did a DPhil in biochemistry doctorate. And then when I was selected for ordination training, that was the wonderful opportunity that Church of England paid for me to read the theology degree here in Cambridge. In fact, here at Corpus Christi, um, back at my old college. Uh, and then eventually, once I got a teaching job, I decided I'd better um, do the do the thing um, that would confirm my ability to teach it. And I did a PhD in medieval theology and uh, philosophy eventually. So I've been in the Cambridge position for about seven and a half years. Uh, before that, I taught systematic or doctrinal theology. And I think it's quite important for me to keep my foot in with that. I think we need to be um, able to hold our heads up and really be engaged and up to date and immersed in the theological conversation as well as the scientific one. Of course, also, also I want to follow what's going on in science. Um, and my research and teaching typically lies between theology, science and philosophy, maybe all three, sometimes two of them, sometimes just one of them. And I've written on apologetics and pastoral questions, sacramental theology. Um, yeah, pretty pretty wide range of things. Dr. Davison, as Jordan has already mentioned, um, some of our listeners are going to be really excited about this topic, participation in God, metaphysics, and that kind of stuff. But we probably have another segment of listeners who is not familiar with this topic at all. So maybe let's just begin by you laying uh, laying out what you mean by participation in God. What does it mean to participate in Him? Well, one thing to say is that in contemporary English, we talk about participation in God, but in an older register of English, we would probably talk about partaking of God or partaking from God. So it's, I think, a way of thinking about theology that really puts God at the centre of everything. So everything that we have comes from God. God is first. It's a vision of theology, I think, that's rooted in the Bible and then through centuries of very productive development uh, since then. And it places the emphasis on words like sharing in, sharing from, re receiving, reception, gift, fellowship, communion. These are the sorts of biblical words that are used in reference to um, participation. So I think that as a first approximation, we can get at it from two different angles. One would be the doctrine of creation and the other the doctrine of redemption. So from the doctrine of creation, it will be about saying absolutely everything about everything comes from God. So again, putting the, the spotlight on God, um, except for evil, which would be a kind of occlusion or impediment of our reception from God. And it would also be a way of contrasting creatures with God. So we say that every creature is fundamentally contingent, it has its being as a gift, doesn't have to be. Uh, and that's not just at some moment in the past, but at every moment, everything comes from God as a gift. Uh, and then we can contrast that and say, and God is wholly underived. God is um, self-subsisting being. Uh, so I think of it as a way that's both about making affirmations, like everything about everything comes from God, but also being uh, quite careful about stressing the difference between creatures and God. And I, you know, we can talk about that a little bit more. So in terms of creation, it's very much aligned with the idea of creation ex nihilo, the creation is out of nothing, that there is no pre-existing anything that stands alongside God. Everything is absolutely gift and created all the way down and received. And uh, we maybe talk later on about kind of expansive view about what things, 
what it means for things to come from God. So is their origin, is their exemplar and their goal, for instance. Um, and in terms of redemption, uh, well, you could approach that in terms of restoration and say, in this participatory kind of approach, what's happened is that our reception from God, our likeness to God has been tarnished and defaced. And redemption is about restoring that participation. But I think it's characterised as well by an approach to redemption that sees it as more than just remedy or more than just a kind of salvaging. That actually what God gives us in Christ goes beyond anything that was ours simply by nature or by creation. So there'll be other new and extraordinary forms of participation which would come through the work of Christ. Um, and they might we might think of to Peter and uh, being participants in the divine nature, but we might also think, I think this is also very participatory language in Hebrews and elsewhere, of the idea that through the incarnation, through the death and resurrection of Christ, we come to share in Christ's sonship. So becoming sons and daughters of God would be a participation in the sonship of Christ. So I, I think that one can absolutely work out all the ways in which an, pro an approach, all the different ways in which people think about redemption in terms of remedy. And I absolutely don't want to uh, deny that and sin, you know, is the scourge and needed to be overcome. But I think it's also a view of soteriology of salvation that goes beyond just remedy towards gifts beyond anything that we could ever have imagined. So there are two main ways, I think, in which the idea of participation can come in. The, one of the impetuses for writing the book was that it seemed to me like the, quite a lot of very good conversations were happening, but in along separate tracks. So there was a, a corpus of literature, excellent discussions of creation in these terms, and there was a discussion also of redemption and, and more than redemption uh, in participatory terms, but not very many people sort of, uh, bridging between them. And of course, it also is language that has been used historically in thinking about Christology uh, and the relation of the human and divine natures in Christ, the Trinity and ideas of perichoresis, so um, the, the, the Son uh, dwelling in the Father um, and, and the Spirit. Uh, so lots of different conversations that I found each very productive, but I thought, well, what if you take a step back and, and work out what there is about this language that can tie all of these registers of theology into one another? Yeah, that's good. So one question I have, the first section of your book, you talk about participation and causation. Um, and you go through, I guess, efficient, material, formal, final causation. So what are the ways we are caused to participate in God? Are these exclude? like, what do you mean by these sort of terms? And I guess uh, a follow-up to that would be that I'd be interested in, since your initial study was in, in natural science, chemistry, I mean, would you take all of these uh, sort of, I guess, Aristotelian causes as actual causes? Because I talk to philosophers of science and they're like, well, the four causal framework, they're not all really causes. There's one type of cause and like material causation is not actual causation. So I think we should probably begin by just exploring a little bit where this language comes from, which is from Aristotle. And of all the different ways in which Christians have thought that Aristotle was onto something, he was an acute observer of the world, and he's given us categories that we can make productive use of. I think the analysis of causation is one of the most widely um, embraced and recognised as being useful. So he said that causation has more than one dimension. So maybe they're not four causes, maybe they're four dimensions to a cause and its relation to an effect. And there's a time-honoured way of thinking about this in terms of casting a statue. 
um, you know, good ancient uh, Hellenistic statue you might find in the British Museum. And you would say, well, there's a cause in the sense that someone did it. There was a sculptor. But that doesn't exhaust what we mean by the causation of this statue. There's also the fact that it was made out of bronze. And if there was no bronze, there'd be no statue. So part of the of the story of causation, one of the partners in this act is the matter, which in this case is bronze, but it's anything that it's the that out of whichness of a thing, as material cause or material dimension of causation. The one who does it, we call the efficient cause. And that's more or less what causation has kind of collapsed down into in modernity. Uh, but it's, you know, if we follow Aristotle, it's much richer than that. Then there's also the formal cause, which is that which was in the mind of the sculptor, which comes to be in the bronze that is the, is the sculpture. And that's saying that if we talk about the causation of the sculpture, but we miss the fact that a particular thing has come into existence of a particular kind, then we're, we're, we're missing the full story. And then finally, this, this final causation, which is the goal or end or intention. And that might be simply seen as, well, the sculptor wanted to do that. If the sculptor didn't want to do that, it wouldn't have happened. And Aristotle says that the final cause is, in a sense, the first of all causes, because if there wasn't something to get you running down that track, you'd never go in the first place. But we can also tell a, a more communal what kind of narrative story and say, well, this is an athlete, and the athlete won the Olympic Games, and the, and the community wants to celebrate that. So there's a, also, in the sense of, of final causation, the, the bigger story of why this thing came to be in the first place. So it's it's time-honoured. I think it's very useful. We can if there's, if there's time, I'm happy to come back, think about it in terms of science. Um, but it just struck me that one of the most interesting things that Thomas Aquinas does in thinking about God in terms of participation, in I think question 44 of the first part of the Summa Theologiae, is to approach it through the four causes. And um, I'm always interested in how to organise ideas in a book and doing the first part according to the four causes seem to be uh, useful. So what do we mean by that? Well, um, the most obvious bit is, you know, God is the agent. God is the one who did it. God is the, the sole and only cause of creation. And in some sense, that's the, the easiest thing to say. Um, but wanting to have quite an expansive view of what it means for everything about everything to come from God, the formal causation angle is to say that creation is patterned after the divine wisdom participates in divine ideas. It is a likeness to various combinations of creaturely forms of imitation of divine excellences. Um, it seems to me that in the ancient world, people would have probably taken it for granted that the forms of things came from God. The great Christian innovation was to say that matter also is completely God's gift and free creation. Um, over and against Plato, you know, for instance, who said that matter was just there always and eternally. So in a sense, the, the revolution in the Christian idea of God was to say God's the origin of matter too. People I think would have taken it for granted that he's the origin of form. I think that gets a bit lost, especially in the last 500 years. People are a bit timid about saying that God is the cause of the characterfulness of things. But I think you've got to say that too. So that's the, the formal cause. And then the final cause is to say you can't really understand creation, at least in a fully theological way, without saying that God is the purpose of creation. Not that God needed creation in order to be more, but that God is the, the telos, the goal, the fulfilment, the one to whom creatures are orientated and the one in which we find our fulfilment. And even creatures that perhaps we don't 
immediately talk about fulfillment, like rocks and flowers and things. They have a kind of excellence that points towards God. So it's quite a dynamic vision. So anyway, that's how I tried to, to structure the first um, part of the book. And also with the material cause to say, this is the one that is denied of God. So God is the world isn't made out of God. Aquinas says, you know, God is the efficient formal and final cause of all things, but not the material cause. The world isn't made out of God. And yet God is the cause of matter. So that with that with that third one, uh, you get a bit of a, a yes and no there. And there's a story to be told, which maybe isn't for today, about the way in which people have explored those three dimensions that can be said of God in terms of the three persons of the Trinity. Mm. But that might be, as I say, for another day. One of the things that we want to do on this podcast is take his- take seriously the history of, of Christian thought on whatever topic it is that we're discussing uh, on that episode. So I wonder if maybe you could walk us through um, some of the different ways theologians have thought about this throughout church history. Um, maybe give us some names uh, that are particularly important when it comes to thinking about participation in God. And then maybe part two of that question, is there a big difference in in thinking about participation in God in the Eastern tradition versus the Western tradition, or is that uh, sometimes the, the the rift or the separation between East and West on some topics can be a little bit overblown, but maybe sometimes there is a big difference. I wonder if you could just let us know what, what your take is on that. One thing that struck me, struck me, you know, rather profoundly actually, was that this idea of efficient formal final causation is not just some some hyper aristotelian scholastic um quirk that you get in the 13th century i was reading john of damascus and if your readers haven't read his on the orthodox faith um i think it's terrific and a, and a real treat and a sort of summation of the whole of the greek patristic tradition and i was reading that uh, in america in fact it was on holiday um and i came across this passage which pretty unambiguously talks about God that way. Um, a bit more recently, I've come across a passage in Gregory of Nyssa. So I think it's there you know, pretty early on. Um, definitely there, Augustine. Um, Bonaventure is a really important writer in terms of... he. You know, uh, Bonaventure is a great compiler of lists and a great... Uh, so he's a contemporary of Aquinas in the 13th century. And he, you can give him a list of seven things and a list of another seven things and a third seven things and he'll come up with these alignments of how they you know and he's so good at it that you almost then don't trust him anymore because he can just he could align anyone's shopping list with anyone's you know anything else um but he one of the things that stretches right the way through his uh thinking about creation are these triplets you know god is father son and holy spirit god is one true and good um, and there are many more that don't come to mind at the moment. But um, so I think Bonaventure is particularly uh, productive in terms of the wider picture of, of participatory language. I mean, it's just we live an absolutely golden age for this, I think. Um, and every year you find someone who's been exploring how these themes, you know, basically because they're so profoundly there in the scriptures, I think, really, um, but, but have been important in a new theologian. So you'll find someone writing about Bonhoeffer, for instance, um, this book a few years ago about the way in which these themes turn up in Wesley, um, the great um, rapprochement between the Finnish Lutherans and the Orthodox Church looks at these sorts of themes in Luther in terms of redemption. Uh, people have written about how it's important in C.S. Lewis, you know, so the, the Calvin, um, Nicholas Accuser, it's uh, just there like a thread running through 
Christian history. Now, there's a second part to that question, and I have forgotten it. Oh, the East and the West. Yes. yes. Yeah, well, I think I need to be quite careful not to speak for the Eastern Church. Um, the one thing to say would be that the idea that salvation, the work of Christ, ultimately is to be understood in some kind of sharing in or sharing from God, influenced by that passage in in 2 Peter about being participants in the divine nature. That's often associated with the East as if it was alien to the West. I think one of the useful things of the past few decades, maybe even just the past decade, has been a new appreciation, confidence perhaps, to say that this is actually really important and taken up in the Western tradition too. So you don't just have to look to the Greek fathers, it's there in Augustine. You find it centrally in at least Aquinas and Bonaventure and other classics too, and then in those Protestant writers that I've mentioned as well. So and the flip side of that is, um, I think it's Norman Russell, probably the preeminent writer about ideas of sharing the divine nature in patristic sources, saying, well, the East actually kind of got a bit, it got a bit lost, this theme. You know, uh, yes, it's surely really important in what we might think of as being uh, orthodox Eastern Orthodox writing that kind of lives up to its tradition. But the Eastern Church got a little bit, uh, well, hijacked is probably the wrong word, uh, but it certainly got um, very much influenced by Western theology and maybe not of the best sort at the best period. Uh, And in the 19th century, you might actually look quite hard before you would find um, these themes in the East. So it's, it's definitely a story where the West has so much to learn from the East, obviously, but it's not as if we're complete, uh, you know, beggars or strangers to this idea, nor perhaps uh, is it even the case that the the East always cherished these uh, treasures as much as it does today. The the big distinction people make is about Palamas, um, Gregory Palamas, and the do you participate in the essence of God or do you participate in the energies of God? And the East has tended to say that you can, even in this life, participate in the energies of God, that sort of... um, you have to leave it to an orthodox theologian to pass exactly what that means, but um, sometimes seem literally as a kind of light that comes from God that the saints uh, enjoy. I suspect if you push back to the patristic sources like Basil, it originally meant more like the operations or the actions of God. You see God in the actions, but you don't see God in God's own essence. Um, So the East can be quite suspicious of the West uh, if it seems that we're saying we can participate in the divine essence. But I think it's important to say that that when when words are like like that are used, the West is being very cautious by what it means by participate. It doesn't mean any kind of continuity of being. It means receiving from, but in your own mode. So um, we might say in the in the vision of God, we participate in the divine essence. But that means only that we see God in a creaturely way as creatures that we receive from God as creatures. So. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, of of worry between the East and West and the, the West worry that the East are um, pushing the essence too far away and bringing the energies too far forward. And the East worry that we are being pantheists or something and saying that we actually share the divine nature. Um, but I think this language in the West of participating in the divine essence, you just need to realise that the word participate there is stressing unlikeness stressing the fact that creatures are creatures and God is God and there's no continuity across that other than um, uh, in Christ. Uh, yeah, I could say more about that, but that's a, that's a first response. Yeah, so 
that leads me to another question that I have. And I think of my own context. I mean, growing up, I probably never heard of this terminology, participation in God, until, I don't know, it may have been seminary when I was reading Jonathan Edwards and I was seeing a lot of this sort of language. And then I started going down the rabbit trails and I find pretty much everybody's accusing him of some sort of like panentheism or pantheism. And it does seem like when people talk about participation in God, there is, at least in my own context, some sort of unease with the way it's cashed out or used, with the potential that it does become some sort of panentheism where everything is participating in God in some um, way that's destroying the creator-creature boundary. So how would you go about cashing that out? Does participation in God, no matter how you use it, explain it, end up leading to that? Or is there a clear way to say, no, this is why it doesn't end up being that? Well, I don't think it does. I don't think it does for me. And I don't think it does for this tradition that I've talked about. I don't think you find that in Aquinas, Augustine, Bonaventure, um, Calvin, you know. So on the other hand, I haven't trademarked the word participation and none of these people have either. So there will be people who talk in a panentheist way who use this word and I you know, can't stop them from doing it. But does the tradition that you see down the centuries by many of these revered names of theology ineluctably lead in that direction? Well, I don't think it does because I don't think it has. Um, so just in terms of defining uh, what we're talking about here, pantheism is... The older word, I think, it's basically an equation between God and creatures, perhaps like you find in Spinoza, for instance. Um, and panentheism is a sort of finessing of that, perhaps saying uh, that the world shares in the divine nature, but there's still God beyond the world, maybe something like that. Or it can just mean the world is in God. And there, I think, is where I'd perhaps be, um, although I'm a bit of a kind of... Uh, sheepdog on this you know I would be wanting to sort of um, defend a traditional view if I was wanting to build bridges I think I'd say well yes there are certainly ways in which we can talk about the world being in God in a way that isn't um, counter to the tradition Um, the world was in God's mind um, for instance Um, but anything that's like a continuity of being or essence in panentheism, I think, would be denied by participation, as I understand it, because it's a way of talking about likeness against the backdrop of an even greater unlikeness. So it seems to me the sort of the wonder of the fact that everything bears some likeness to its maker is all the more wonderful because you've got to start by saying God is God and we are not. God is infinite and we are not. God is perfect and we're not, and so on. So yeah, I think you need to sort of, a bit like in Romans, uh, Paul really you know, makes the backdrop incredibly inky and very, very quiet by condemning everything. And then the thunderclap and the lightning flash of grace can come in in chapter two. Um, I think similarly, participation, that, that flicker of a trace of a likeness, to think of kind of Ezekiel's language, that we find is all the more remarkable because we've gone out of our way first to stress that God is God and creatures are creatures. So I think that the infinite quantitative distinction, beloved of Bart and many others, is absolutely there. Um, I suppose I mentioned earlier this this sense that if you're going to think about 
God causing the world in terms of the four causes, then or four dimensions of causation, then it's precisely by de- denying that God is the material cause. And that's people. That's like a like a drumbeat, you know, down the tradition of saying the world is not made out of God. So, like I say, probably panentheism can mean more than one thing. Participation can mean more than one of one any one thing. But if you're looking at the kinds of authors that I've been discussing, I think that they're as committed to stressing the absolute discontinuity between God and creatures as they are um, uh, likeness. I, I would want to just to add that there's so much wonderful work being done in the past decade or two on the way in which it's the profound, complete, utter, unexpressible unlikeness between God and creatures that actually is what undergirds the intimacy between God and creatures. So um, you know, Kathy Tanner, Catherine Tanner, talks about non competitive relationships and that if if you there's a sense in which if you're still talking about distance between god and creatures you're not going far enough because you distance still plots god and creatures on the same axis um there's a sense in which god and creatures are so unutterably incomparable that they then don't um that, that isn't that the language of distance isn't isn't right so if, if augustine says god is closer to me than i am to myself i think in a way that's probably easier to talk about mystically than it is, you know, to absolutely cut and dried philosophy. It's precisely that that difference. So I remember in the seventies, eighties, sort of liberal tradition of of theology was saying, well, God, Jesus can't be divine and human because you know, well, God's one thing and a human's another. And then some people like Herbert McCabe said, no, that's that's the point. It's precisely because God and creatures are so unutterably different that they can perfectly overlap. Uh, in Christ, so a piece of an, an apple can't be an orange because they're actually too similar. They kind of exclude one another within the realm of fruit. But a piece of paper can also be a exam script, precisely because they're so different. And then you kind of take that to the ultimate degree. Um, there's uh, anyway, there are lots of interesting themes there. But I, I really want to stress the, the infinite qualitative difference between God and creatures. And then I want to say that's absolutely integral to what means that for instance my action can be my action and god's action because they're just not they're not in competition because they're so unutterably different Mm -hmm. i think one of the things that's come out in just this 30 minutes that we've been talking so far is um it's, it's not only important that we're talking about participation but how we talk about it is very important so that brings us into the realm of of language, the kind of language that we use. Is analogical language uh, the way forward here when we talk about participation in God? Is that the best way for us to make sense of this relationship between us and 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 our participation in our Creator? Yeah, well, one of the things that I did at one point was take a step back and I said, well, what are the ways in which people have talked about participation? What, what does it mean? If we're going to characterize it, define it, what would it be? And I worked through a series of ways in which it gets expressed in language that I thought were increasingly more useful. So you might have quite quantitative part of language. That doesn't seem very helpful. You know, we're not part of of God like you're dividing a pie up. Um, Part in might be a bit more useful. Uh, What else did I talk about? Reception and limitation, um, likeness, uh, the way in which a an, uh, an effect bears a trace of its cause. That's quite a productive way of thinking. Um, and then, the, especially in Aquinas, this language of mode of being. So, you know, when one thing is in another or is reflected in another, it's reflected in the characteristic way 
of the recipient. And so this is one of the ways in which he really wants to stress that this complete difference of mode between creature and creature. So that's that's part of the ling linguistic story, just kind of what, what words do we use? Um, but you're right about analogy. I think for me, analogy and participation are the flip sides of the same coin. So if things are related in terms of participation, in terms of their being, then the words that we use for them will be related to one another in terms of analogy. Uh, so I, I think of participation as providing the sort of uh, metaphysical framework for how analogy works. I think analogy is um, the way in which participation shows itself in language. I can give you a few examples uh, if that's helpful. Um, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, so for instance, if we talk about a play as Shakespearean, then you know we're taking this word Shakespeare and we're saying causes bear the trace of their uh, no, sorry, other way around. Effects bear courses of their trace. Trace. Uh, sorry, I'll start to get. We we um we we mean that effects bear a trace of their cause. There's a, a, a sense in which Shakespeare's play particip plays participate in him, and so we have this analogical language between Shakespeare and Shakespearean. Um, the classic example from Aristotle is uh, to do with health. So you've got really only people can be healthy or animals, uh, other animals. But we, but he would also talk about healthy diet or healthy appearance or healthy urine, he would say, which is basically a sign of health. We might say a healthy CAT scan or an X-ray or something like that. So um, there's there's the the prime example, which is the health of the ox or the human being and then there are these other things that because of what they are in terms of being participate in the thing we're mainly talking about similarly the language that we use is analogically related um and for aquinas and many others but he's the sort of great greatest of writers on this i think this is the whole basis for how human words can bear the weight of bearing witness to god um and he does it in several places uh, but I think question 13 of the first part of the summer is the one to look at. Slightly jumbled. I think it could have done with a little bit of an edit. Um, and not least because he comes at the same thing. He says something, something comes out in, in between, then he'll kind of come back to it. So you sort of need to reconstruct it in your mind to get a really straightforward uh, account of it. But um, so what he says there is that there's a problem. How can human words, which are always about human things, bear witness to God, who's not human or a creature. Um, and you can, you know, how well, our words are in, intrinsically temporal and tensed, but God's eternal. Our words are about complex things, but God's simple. So there seems to be a real, a real problem. And his response is to say that because everything that's excellent in the world has its origin in God, then what we're talking about is a way in which creation has this kind of way of bearing witness. And although my words for, say, goodness or justice or wisdom have always got a creaturely referent in mind, and I've learned what those words are by, you know, the example of my grandmother, who was just and kind and wise, for instance. Uh, but where did she get that from? It's because everything that's good about everything comes from God that those words can speak about the one from whom those qualities come. So he'll say that when it comes to the, the manner of signifying, the words are more creaturely than they are divine. But when it comes to the thing that's being signified, 
they're more divine than creaturely. So the, our words always start with the creature and have to be stretched to God. But they can do that because the things that we're talking about, goodness, beauty, any of these things, they started in God and came to the creature. And I don't have to understand how that works in order for it to work, which is this is very, you'd say, metaphysically realist um, vision of things. It's like there are really things out there and they really have those qualities and they're not just constructions of the human mind. And um, so it's a very, uh, anyway, we'll come, we could come on to that on, on another occasion. So I can honestly say that question 13 of the first part of the summer really changed my life. Um, and I would say it was partly because it's a wonderful account of religious language, but even more because he has this kind of scaffolding of the way in which the world relates to its creator. And that was my first, I would say, explicit encounter with this kind of participatory language and I really knocked my socks off. And um, so I'll I'll tell you about the book. I started off thinking I would write about 30 or 40,000 words. It would be a little introduction. I didn't think I was worthy to attempt to write, you know, anything more significant than that on what seemed to me such an important topic. But then I got writing and writing and expanded. I thought, well, no one else has quite done it. So um, I'll, I'll let it expand beyond that uh, to be a to be a bigger book. Well, I'm glad that you did. <laughs> um, a question that I had, so I, we've been talking it's a lot about, really it seems like philosophy, theology intersecting together in this topic. And we were talking beforehand, before the interview, how you mentioned how you had a book that kind of talked a little bit about the relationship between these two things. So I just Googled, and I didn't know this existed, and I think this is the book you were talking about, The Love of Wisdom, An Introduction to Philosophy for Theologians. And I was skimming through it, like just the you know the table contents of things, and this looks great. So maybe take a couple of minutes here just to, to cash out your own view of how it is that philosophy interacts with theology. Because at least in my American evangelical circles, there is a significant suspicion or confusion about how philosophy is supposed to interact with theology. Well, I wrote it a, a little bit of time ago, I mean, 10, 10 or more years ago. And although I'm no spring chicken anymore, I do s- still think of it as being now kind of a work of juvenilia. So, um, but I stand by it. Uh, maybe one day I'll go back to it and, and revise it. I think it was a bit of an extraordinary uh, maybe vainglorious thing to suppose that one would write about the history of uh, philosophy um, kind of towards the beginning of one's career rather than the end. But um, it grew out of a class that I used to teach, first at the seminary that I taught in in Oxford and then later in the one that I taught in Cambridge, recognising that philosophy just wasn't on the curriculum for, for seminarians, for um, pastors in training. And I think that that's a kind of quirk of history in that maybe 100 or 200 years ago, certainly you know more years ago than that, people would have done another degree first and they might well have done classics or they'd have taken the ancient quadrivium and trivium, which you know, takes you through so much um, in, in philosophy. And we kind of don't do that anymore, but we don't put it in place as a, as a substitute. I'd also spent a semester in Rome as an ecumenical exchange student at the Angelicum, the Dominican University in Rome. And there, of course, Roman Catholic priests in training do two years of philosophy before they move on to theology. So well, I can't do two years, but I might try and do 10 classes or something like that. So um, it, it yeah, grew out of those optional classes that I ran in the seminaries. I also come from an evangelical background and I had that uh, suspicion and you know, don't be taken 
captive by empty philosophy or whatever we read in, in Colossians. Um, but I, I've come very much to the conclusion that if you don't think about philosophy, if you don't think about the categories of thought that you're using, that's when you're most likely to be held captive by them. Um, and the idea that somehow I am in danger because I'm doing philosophy, whereas someone who doesn't do philosophy is not in, in danger of uh, in, you know, in that sense because they're not explicitly doing it, just seems to me completely wrong. I mean, we all use categories. We, we all use concepts. And the way, you know, the way to bring, take every thought captive to Christ or whatever Paul says is to think about it and to do the excavation. Um, so that's to use relatively negative language of, of capture and so on. Um, I also think that one can be just more upbeat about it and say, God is the principle of all rationality. You know, God is the logos. Um, uh, there's nothing to be afraid of with reason, because reason is is one of the most profound ways in which there's God's imprint in the world. Uh, Paul says in uh, Romans 12, you know, um, which is your spiritual worship, but the the Greek is more like you know logical worship, rational worship. You know, it seems that uh, Paul is encouraging us to take our thought thought processes seriously. Um, it's also one of the great sort of underappreciated treasures of the history of the church that there have been these astonishing thinkers who have um, been great reflectors upon reality, great kind of quarriers of what's gone before. Um, people use the language of despoiling the the gold of the Egyptians, you know. So um, William Booth said, "Why should the devil have all the best tunes?" You know. So why why should um, we not be receptive of um, anything that's good or excellent? Paul says, "Doesn't he? anything that's good or excellent or worthy of praise or something?" You know, uh, c- celebrate these things, attend to these things, um, and yeah, there's much in the history of thought that one might want to criticise, but there's plenty also where the the light of of truth and goodness and beauty shines forth um and i i'm also here trying to address this sort of liberal german protestant critique of the late 19th century the kind of harnack critique that somehow you've got this pure unphilosophical hebraic message that then just gets corrupted by influence of uh, hellenistic thought and it seems to be just wrong in all sorts of ways and much dis, you know, debunked nowadays. But I mean, for one thing, it doesn't take the sophistication of the biblical tradition seriously enough. And there've been some lovely books recently talking about the sort of intellectual philosophical sophistication of well, the, the Old Testament as well as the New. Um, also, these things just didn't happen in a vacuum from one another. And we see that just in, in the language of the New Testament. There are clearly ways in which some of the authors are picking up and repurposing Stoic or um, Platonic ideas. And I just think language is shot through with with concepts. You just can't speak without using them. So it's not that these ideas that these things are just kind of sealed off from one another is not right. I think it also doesn't take seriously enough the way in which um, Christian authors transformed the ideas that they that they took on board. So you, um, you get like the word like hypostasis, which... Um, Starts off the way in which it turns up in Hebrews, it means something like essence or being, and by the time it's been you know put through its paces and it's being used in definitions of who Christ is as human and divine, it actually means the thing that isn't the, the essence. It means the person, or that is the essence. But that we're talking about in contradistinction. So one, one um, essence and three persons, or um, uh, yeah, so on. So I think for me. 
the history of Christian thought isn't about philosophy bending theology out of shape. It's about theology bending philosophy into new shapes. Or at least it can be. I mean, we all know there are ways in which... Uh, we might all have different ideas of what the dead ends look like or the wrong turns, but we know that there are some. But the fact that there aren't that there are some doesn't mean that we just give up on the whole project. We just try and do it well. I also think it's really important for apologetics. So, you know, Aquinas says uh, that something like you know philosophy is useful uh, both positively and negatively. It's it's useful positively because you want to find the best possible ways, the clearest ways, the most intelligible ways of expressing what you want to say. And in a more negative kind of way, sometimes you've just got to roll your sleeves up and get involved with the world form, the thought form of the people that you're talking to, and perhaps show how it doesn't bear water, doesn't hold water or it's internally inconsistent or something. So sometimes you'll be looking for the best thing you possibly can, the treasures that we can find in Plato or Aristotle or whatever. Um, and sometimes, you know, you might think, well, the world's pretty Nietzschean and I, you know, find Nietzsche appalling. But if that's the way the world is, you've got to kind of, um, you know, hold your nose and, and and get involved with it and say, this doesn't work. And it, and in that sort of more uh, critical way. So there are just all sorts of ways in which I think the, the, the apologetic task calls for attention to philosophy. I mean, it's not the way that most people come to faith. It's not the thing that maybe nurtures most people in their faith. But it is really important for some. Um, sometimes uh, in a sort of uh, therapeutic kind of way that they've read the New Atheists and sort of paper-thin, ignorant, uh, you know, stuff about um, what, what evolution means or cosmology or something. I mean, things that cosmologists say about th theology are just... Uh, just embarrassing so sometimes the work of the theological the philosophical work is just to uh sort of free people try to free people from the idea that somehow quantum gravity or something just disproves the that there could even be a god something like that so sometimes it's that kind of kind of work but for other people it's like a kind of amazing allure it's a kind of a, a joyful glorious thing when suddenly their intellects come alive because they've read augustine or Jonathan Edwards or you know Aquinas it's a pretty small minority of people but um, it seems to me with evangelism and apologetics and so on there's there's room for specialization your podcast will be incredibly important for the people who listen to it and they are not going to be very many percent you know well, let's be honest you know a fraction of a percent of, of the community but that's fine you have your ministry to your people and your your what you where your excellence can can lead you and similarly there are some people for whom a philosophical exploration for the faith is what really is converting and um you know, it's not the whole story but it's part of it and it's the part that i you know can perhaps um, contribute to before we land the plane here i do want to uh talk briefly about part four of your book participation in the shape of the human life especially since you've brought up apologetics because i think this part of your book may actually have some apologetic value uh, today. It seems like the categories of truth, beauty, and goodness uh, seem to be a bit uh, chaotic right now in the West. <laughs> um, I don't know of a better way to put it. So we could zero in on beauty or truth or goodness, or you could just maybe talk about if you think that a, a retrieval of talking about these things in the language of participation has apologetic value for the church today. That thought about how this cashed out in sort of in everyday life, really, what it means to be a human, what it means to love, what it means to know, to pray, to live together. 
I also wanted to put an emphasis on, I think it's something I mentioned already, this idea of realism. That this is, that there really is a world out there. It really is created by God. It has certain characteristics. And it's um, one of the ways in which I think this is quite a celebratory, reverential um, approach is that it's very much about attention and reception. So particularly I wanted to explore accounts of truth and epistemology about receiving from the thing that you know. To know something is to participate in it, to receive from it. Um, and there are all sorts of, I think, fascinating things one could talk about there. Not least when it comes to apologetics and, and pastoral work, um, the, sense, the sense that there being a kind of depth to things and a kind of inexhaustibility. And one of the things I did with the book was to um, talk about the experience that a lot of people have where faith can seem complicated, um, things that maybe seemed just quite simple don't seem so simple anymore. And I wanted to, to explore that in terms of saying, well, maybe you're just getting in terms, get, getting uh, a sense of the, the depth of things, the inexhaustibility of things because they're grounded in God. Um, so yeah, it has some pastoral as well as, um, as apologetic uh, resonances. Um, in terms of goodness, I wanted to show that people who write in this sort of way about goodness, it's a very appealing positive view of goodness is obviously the law is important uh, the law is you know human law is a participation in the natural law is participation in the divine law which is god's own nature so there's you know law and prohibitions I'm, I'm not against them but ultimately this isn't a sort of vision of ethics like some kind of miserable account of just duty like you know it's not like kant it's about delight it's about fullness and fulfillment it's about holding up the lives of people in whom the spirit has been ablaze and saying, this is a good life. This is an excellent life. This is, this is really attractive. Um, it's for me, it's a vision of, of ethics. That's, uh, it's kind of more about ultimately the carrot than the stick. I mean, we do need the stick, but it's about ultimately, I think people's lives are changed when they just recognize how attractive a life of Christ likeness would be. Um, and I suppose that's where beauty comes into it. So, um, I wanted so particularly goodness, beauty, truth being these so-called transcendentals. They kind of participate in one another, and there's you know there's a truth to goodness and a goodness to truth and a beauty to truth and so on. Um, and I wanted to explore beauty as the kind of allure of the good, the splendor of of the good. And um, so I begin with spirituality and and kind of the the draw towards God as the beautiful, because I think that severing ethics from spirituality has just been a disaster for everything for both sides you know a hundred years ago or more we wouldn't have taught these things separately there would have been something like ascetical theology and it would have embraced living a good life and living a holy life and living a life of prayer and so on and by separating um uh, spirituality and ethics spirituality becomes kind of a, a chase for happy feelings or something like that it becomes quite feelings and in, in quite um just about me 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 and my own personal relationship with god and how it makes me feel if we're not careful and ethics becomes a duty and um also i think difficult rare difficult problems that other people have rather than how am i going to live in this community now what am i going to do with my money now what decisions am i going to make uh concretely now so I, I sort of provocatively, I suppose, started with 
beauty and spirituality and prayer and the, the sort of just the attractiveness of, of God and of goodness. And then I think I begin the ethics chapter by saying, and if we've got that in place, then basically ethics is there already. Um, and and also the importance of example and um, an imitation. And I, I, I really, I'd like, I'd love to write more about this from a scriptural perspective. I try to keep the witness of the Bible there quite robustly, but I'd almost like to write a commentary, I suppose, and not a commentary, but maybe a kind of uh, commentary on a container, a chain of of passages that that bring this out. Uh, and Paul is saying, imitate me. He also says at one point, imitate those who imitate me imitating Christ. And you get these sorts of, um, sort of narrative, historical, very personal examples of um, of imitation and one person participating in the example of another. And that seems to me important. I, I think we could do more with the the example of ho- of holy people. I find, say, the martyrs of the Second World War just completely st- stopped me in my tracks. It's difficult to read their stories without without being in tears. Really, I was in um, I was in uh, Dresden a few years ago, and there were there was a grave of these Catholic priests who'd been executed by the Third Reich. One of them for denouncing the Nazis in a, a Christmas nativity play. And I, you know, it was very moving even to think about it. You just you come in you come in contact there with a life that was ablaze with its participation in God. And for me, these are the, the things that that stop you in your tracks and make you think that's what it means to be a human being. That's what it means to be an image of God. Um, examples and the sort of splendor of a of a good life. Yeah, that's. Great stuff. This is, I feel like this whole interview has been awesome. So I want to say thank you for taking the time to, number one, write this book, to number two, talk with us about this. But before we close up, I do want to mention or ask you, where is the best place for our listeners to go to find out about your upcoming future work and other works that you have? I know you have the, your faculty page, which it's got, it, it looks pretty up to date to me. I don't know. Some people's faculty pages don't get updated every, but every five years, others get updated more frequently. So just where can we go to find what work you're doing and what you're going to be doing in the future? Well, I try to keep that page up to date. And I think also my, I I encourage people to buy books from independent local booksellers, but you can um, take Amazon for a ride by at least, you know, looking at my page there, author page, because I I try to keep that up to date too. Um, I just finished a book on, Life Elsewhere in the Universe, so asking the question, if you open the newspaper tomorrow and there's evidence of life elsewhere in the universe, because it's one of the great developments of my lifetime has been recognising that there are, you know, planets are ubiquitous around stars and a lot of them could could support life. What difference would it make for kind of the whole sweep of Christian theology? Um, so that was that was quite fun and, that, you know, um, fulfilling the, the science part of my um, uh, vocation and employment. But I really also then have um, two books in mind that will be probably companions to the participation book. One which would be about mediation. So if participation is about in and from, then mediation would be through and by. Um, I think that's a really important um, theme. Um, And one that's just, again, a bit like the flip side. Like analogy is the flip side of participation, I think, in another sense, uh, mediation is. Um, and I also want to finish a book that's mainly done on the nature of finitude. So what does it mean to be finite? What does it mean to have limits? Um, so the existentialists talked about that quite a lot in the later 20th century, but it was often quite miserable. And it was about 
finitude as, as death, basically. But I'm more interested in the finitude of particularity, of like the, the finitude of the particular way in which anything participates in God. I'm a bit of a particularity mystic, I think. I'm just kind of enchanted by the treeness of this tree and the, you know, the catness of this cat. And um, so I want to elaborate, I think, a more positive vision of finitude and say, in fact, you can only... Well, our call is for God to perfect us according to the kind of thing that we are. That's a theme I've talked about already. So um, maybe, maybe a short book, appropriately a short book on finitude, would also be uh, something in the next few years. That's awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. I think, uh, I mean, I'm sure that everybody who's been listening has really enjoyed this as well. So I commend all your work. I haven't read it all, but just talking to you and having read what I have read, uh, I am confident that it will inspire you to think well about things and to love God more. So that's that's what we're all about here. Um, and pursuing these other, other sorts of virtues that we've talked about, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and a cheerful confessionalism, you seem to really... Uh, want to exemplify those. So I love promoting people who do that um, because I think that makes for a happier and better theological community, uh, church community, and it it really pushes us towards uh, being more like Christ. So thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.